All right, question 45 to 48 for our review this morning. Which is the first commandment? What is required in the first commandment? <clears throat> what is forbidden in the first commandment? And finally, what are we especially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? These words are before me in the first commandment. Teach us to guard, to teach all things, to take a notice of, to do this, to Amen. Amen. Alright, we come this morning to look at the second half of the first commandment, each of the commandments having two halves, if you will, the positive and the negative. So we looked last time, of course, at what the duties are that are required in this first commandment, and now this morning at the sins forbidden in the first commandment. The first commandment, of course, as we see, is written in the negative. We saw that last week as we came to understand why the commandments are written in the negative, and most of them, of course, are. This is in order that the law may be given and may be as absolute as possible, leaving no other room for misinterpretation, no room for, well, maybe sometimes it's okay if I break this. Putting in the negative makes the positive most absolute. It strengthens and affirms, presses the affirmative by stating the negative. So in this case, of course, in this first commandment, the negative is, of course, that we are to have no other gods before God. So that what is forbidden first and foremost to us as moral creatures, and this is what we need to understand, and this is what I want to impress this morning. This isn't just the first commandment of ten given to us in the law of God. This is the first commandment. This is the greatest thing that is put before us. Keep this, we keep the rest. Break this, we break the rest. Right? This is where the law of God begins. This is where our moral obligation as creatures of God begins. What is forbidden, first and foremost to us, is the having of anything whatsoever on which we set our hearts other than God. The having of anything whatsoever that we esteem and worship and stand in awe of more than God. There is one place that belongs to God in this regard, and it is the place of worship and love, even as we looked at last time with the positive side of this commandment. But that one place belongs to none but God. If we give that place in our hearts, in our lives, practically, intellectually, theoretically, hypothetically, if we give that place to any other, we are guilty of the breaking of this commandment. We are guilty of idolatry. We are guilty before the Lord. And so God sets this out as at the beginning of our moral obligation. We are to allow nothing whatsoever to withdraw our souls or anything in our body or our souls away from the worship of God. The worship of God is primary for us as creatures. And we see this at the very beginning of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, that being the fruit of glorifying him. Joy comes to the creatures of God 
as they glorify God, as they worship God, honor and exalt God, which is what we saw as the positive side of this commandment last time. So five things are especially forbidden in this commandment. The first, of course, is the sin of neglecting the duty commanded. That's obvious, right? The sin of not doing, it's the sin of omission, right? So we always need, we, we need to remember that when we looked at this and we looked at the rules for rightly interpreting the law of God, there's a sin of omission as well as commission. So first and foremost is the sin of omitting the duties of worshiping God alone as God. And then in terms of commission, looking at the other four. So that's the obvious one, but it needs to be stated. So then secondly, the sin of atheism or agnosticism, whether this be intellectual or practical. Now, intellectual atheism is obvious. It's the outright denial of God. It is a sin that overturns religion by its roots, or at least attempts to. Overturns religion by the roots. It uproots religion entirely. It's not just saying, well, I don't like your God, Yahweh. I worship Molech, or I worship Baal. It's not that at all. It's saying there is no God. So I'm not accountable not only to your God, but I'm not accountable to any God. And that leads, of course, to the last thing we'll look at is the very sin of autonomy. However, at this point, the sin of atheism or agnosticism. All right, Turn to Psalm 14.1. You know the verse, but we'll put it before us that it may be seen to be the very word of God. Psalm 14 and then Luke 19. This essentially is atheism. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, despite what the fool says, he can't remove the fact or change the fact that there is a God. That he has a God. That the God who is remains. And he can't pluck him from his throne. He can't exclude him or cut him off. He is and remains forever God. But the fool says to himself, he says in his heart, and by saying it in his heart, this affects his whole life. Everything he does now is going to flow out of this central hub of the denial of God, atheism. There is no God. We'll look later at the rest of those verses. Turn to Luke 19. Remember the parable the Lord gives here of the ten minas. I'm not going to go into the parable, but just look at verse 14. This is atheism. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. That's essentially what atheism is. It is saying to myself, for myself, I do not want God to reign over me. And it's more verse, it's more Luke 19.14 than it is I, uh, Psalm 14.1. Or if we go back to Psalm 14.1, the preeminent part of that is the foolishness of it. It's the foolishness of such a denial, the refusal of such a, 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 of such a, a fool, simply because he can't change the fact or remove the fact that there is a God and that God is his God. And he's accountable to that God. But this really gets at the heart of it. It's this refusal. I refuse by saying, when we choose atheism, we are saying the God who is 
I refuse to let him reign over me. But again, look at the foolishness of it. You can't stop God from reigning over you. You will forever be a dependent moral creature of the God who made you, the God who is. So you can't stop it or change it, but you want to live in light of that. And that's what atheism does. Technically, of course, atheism, both atheism and agnosticism are therefore impossibilities. Atheism being the denial of God. There is no God. There is no creation or creator, right? Or agnosticism. I don't know if there is a God, right? It's, a, it's a, the choosing of a position of supposed neutrality or supposed excusable ignorance. How can I be held accountable to a God if I'm not certain that there is a God? And so the sinner thinks he has found a loophole, right? I wouldn't deny that there is a God, but I just, there's not enough evidence. I don't know. I can't tell. I've studied and I'm still at a loss. Therefore, I say, I don't know. Choosing, therefore, a place that he thinks excuses him of accountability. But atheism and agnosticism are impossibilities because man cannot erase or annul either the fact of his being made by God in the image of God or the testimony to that reality in his own conscience and heart. He can talk all day long saying there is no God, but his own conscience betrays him. His own conscience tells him there is a God. He can say all day long, I don't know, and there's not enough evidence, but his own conscience betrays him. The very evidence is in his own heart, his own breast, if you will, testifying to him that there is a God, he is accountable to that God, and Romans 1.32 says one day will give account to that God as he stands before him. So these two positions are impossibilities, which is why that one book was written, I can't remember the author now, um, atheists doesn't believe, you know, atheists don't believe in God. The book says, well, God doesn't believe in atheists. There's no such thing. And Romans 1 makes that so very clear. Atheism is, atheism is not an intellectual position so much as it is a rebellious position. It's a rebellion of the heart. It is a choice of foolishness. That's what it is. <laughs> However, even though these are impossibilities, however, a man may be so hardened in his heart by sin that he can intellectually choose to deny God's existence and to look upon himself and all nature as coming into existence and being sustained without God, atheistically. So he can choose a position. So it's possible for him as a sinner, though it be technically impossible, and it's certainly impossible before God, and the judgment day that is coming, it will not be a possibility or an excuse that he chose this position. But he can be so hardened in his sin, and he can play such a fool that he can choose a position, theoretically, intellectually, and he can choose a position that says, I refuse to acknowledge a God. There is no God. I did not come into existence by the creation of some God, some God creating me, nor did any and the rest of nature. It all came into existence in some other way. Or, of course, giving nature an eternality. Creation, matter, eternally exist. And so deifying matter. Anyways, we don't need to get into all of that. But it's his choice, it's his dogged determination, the atheist, 
It's his choice to, to choose this position that's not only at the heart of this deadly sin, but also at the core of his own foolishness and the consequences that will surely follow upon such a choice. Again, it's not a place of excuse. It is a place of tremendous accountability. It's a place of foolishness, and it's a place of accountability so that at the heart of this deadly sin is his choosing a place of atheism, a position, a religion of atheism in the face of all the contrary evidence that God has so clearly given to him. The atheist will be held accountable for the rebelliousness, the rebellious nature of his choice and the utter foolishness of his choice. And he will rue the day for all eternity that he chose such a religion that chose to deny God. Turn back to Psalm 14 and we'll turn to Romans 1. Psalm 14 and Romans 1. This atheistic position is at the heart of his foolishness and also the consequences that flow from this position. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We might say, there is no God for me, because that's what he's doing. Notice the result of this choice, this disposition. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. You recognize that from Romans 3, or recognize Romans 3 from Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not even one. How does the life of man get to be so terrible? so wicked, so ungodly, because he begins with the disposition of denying God's over him, God's place over him. We will not have this man to reign over us. What's the consequence of turning your back on God? Ungodliness, wickedness, evil, sin, death, and damnation. That's where it leads. No good comes of atheism. Right? We've seen this already in the last, looking at uh, the positive side of this commandment. No good comes of the denial of God. Because God is the all good, the summum bonum, the supreme good, and God holds in his hand all good. So you can't get good without God. It doesn't exist. You can't get comfort. You can't get peace. You can't get joy. You can't get happiness. It doesn't exist. So that whatever happiness and joy and peace one might enjoy in this life is a lie, a deception, if they begin with a denial of God. God is kindly giving those two things, those things to them, but it will bite them in the end because it will increase their culpability because God is, if you will, increasing the testimony of his existence. And in the face of all he does for them, they continue to deny him. And it just makes him all the more guilty. So nothing comes, nothing good can come of denying God, choosing a religion of atheism, a way of life. Turn to Romans 1. Look at the context here. Paul makes it so very clear. 
Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness, the breaking of the first table. Unrighteousness, the breaking of the second table. Um, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice it's a suppression. They're not ignorant. They're not blind. They're willfully suppressing. Suppressing is, a, is an action done by oneself. Right? It's a willful action. And they're suppressing the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, his existence, if we want to put it there, have been clearly perceived. It's plain to them. God's shown it to them. It's been clearly perceived. Notice the redundancy of clarity. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens preach to man. His own heart preaches to him, his conscience, and the heavens preach to him. He is without excuse, as Paul goes on. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That assumes culpability. That assumes a willful act of rebellion in the suppression itself. For although they knew God, notice the assertion now. Wait a minute. I refuse to acknowledge God. Wait a minute. I don't really know if there's a God. I can't tell. Paul says they knew God. We might say they know God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. Notice the rebellion, the willful choices. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Notice the ingratitude. We don't realize how great a sin ingratitude is. God hates ingratitude because we of all people should be most grateful. The ingratitude, give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Psalm 14, notice the result, right? And their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the thing about sin. Once we take a bite of sin, once we choose a disposition of sin, sin is blinding. We are willfully closing our eyes for a moment in a choice of sin, but what sin does is nail it shut. Sin blinds, deceives, and unless there is the intervening grace of God, there's no rescue. Because we get more and more blind, more and more deceived, more and more buried under sin. That's what sin does. You can't taste it and then put it away. It blinds and binds you. So, their foolish hearts are darkened, claiming to be wise. They thought this was a wise choice, a choice according to reason. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore... Notice the consequent. Go back to last week's sermon. The just wrath of a holy God. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. In other words, gave them what they wanted. To impurity, because that's the result of those choices. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the willfulness. They exchanged the truth about God, which they knew. For a lie which they instead chose. Not this man, but will take Barabbas. That's the willful choice. And worshipped, we'll talk about worship this morning, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Atheism isn't just a breaking of the first commandment. It is the adoption of of a religion that blinds, deceives, and damns. 
It is the inviting of the holy wrath of a just God. So that's, if you will, intellectual atheism, a religion of atheism or agnosticism. But let's not just throw atheism out with the other guy. Let's remember that atheism is a sin of our own hearts too. The church is very susceptible to atheism. We need to be on our guard against atheism. We would never outright deny God, praise God for his grace and opening our eyes, and, but practically we can be atheists and indeed often are. Alexander White describes it this way. He says, practical atheism is vulgar irreligion. It is living without God in the world. It's not the denying of God in the world, notice, the theoretical side, the intellectual side. It's living without God in the world. It's the practical outworking of it. Many who would shudder at the name of atheist are yet, for all intents and purposes, living an atheist life. And then he points the finger to us. How many atheistic hours we all spend and how many atheistic acts we all perform, let each man say for himself. It's a great place for self-examination. Where in my life do I live as if there were no God? As if God wasn't looking, as if God wasn't watching, as if God had not told me to do otherwise, as if there was no day of, a day of judgment. Where am I living as if God were not God my God? Practical atheism is a danger for every Christian. And we need to be on our guard against it by cultivating two things very quickly. Cultivating, first of all, the awareness that we ever live, coram Deo, before the face of God. Remember what we said earlier with regard to the preface and then the first commandment as well. We are never not moral creatures before God. We are never in a place where we are not morally accountable to God. Because God is and always will be. So we need to cultivate both the awareness that we live Coram Deo. And we also need to cultivate what's been called the practice of the presence of God. If you know the old book by Brother Lawrence. And of course it's been better said in other places. But that's the one that bears the title. The practice of the presence of God. What is this? It is essentially living a life of communion with God. It is remembering that we have no secrets before God. Practicing the presence of God is living out the reality that there are no secrets from God. God sees what I do. God knows what I do. God either approves or disapproves of what I do. God commands me at every place and at every time to do only what I ought to do and never to do what I ought not to do. Practicing the presence of God, living aware of God and in communion with God. That's what we need to do as Christians. Isn't that the blessing of weekly worship? Remember when we did the study on worship some months ago? What is worship? What is the Lord's Day? It's our reorientation from all out there that's calling us to bow down and worship that we are the worshipers of the one true and living God. The, the Lord's Day is a reorientation. If we squander it or forfeit it, we will hardly be pulled away from the worship of everything else because we will worship, right? We're worshiping creatures. 
Likewise, we should beware, particularly, there's a lot of things that give way to atheism, but we should beware particularly of the influence of prosperity. Right? Prosperity, probably more than anything else, prosperity so easily gives way to practical atheism in the life of believer. God's people don't do well with prosperity, with promotion, with exaltation, right? Because the higher we, the higher the Lord raises us, the higher we like to stand above all other things. The lower the Lord keeps us, the more often we're on our knees. So we need to be aware of the influence of prosperity on our hearts. Notice, it's not beware of prosperity. Even Paul testifies to this in 1 Timothy 6. It's not money that's the problem. It's not prosperity that's the problem. Job is the richest man in all the world, in all the east. Abraham was rich. Prosperity is not the problem. It's the love of money, or here as we put it, it's the influence of prosperity on our hearts which will easily be drawn away from God by wealth. Because when you have everything or can buy whatever you need, why would you pray? There's no reason to pray. There's no You lose the sense of dependence when you become independent. And in this world, money creates independence, doesn't it? Money buys everything, it would seem. Money buys everything. Or by your way out of anything. You don't need to be dependent when you become independent. This is why God likes to keep his people in troubles and trials. Because of the danger of prosperity on our lives and on our hearts. If we can't seem to ever reach that next place that we're trying so hard to get to in terms of promotion or advance or, or, or salary or income level, we need to stop and pause and think and thank God that he knows what that, how that would impact me. That it is better, as we said in another lesson, and we went through the Lord's Prayer, it's better to be poor and be dependent upon God than to be rich and forget God. Practical atheism is a great danger to the church. But the other danger, too, we need to think, the thing we need to be aware of is the doubting and denying of God's hand in providence. The minute we start doubting and denying God's hand in providence... That tempts us to doubt and deny God's existence at all. Because if God isn't in this, if God isn't in control of this, if God didn't ordain this, then where in the world is he and what is he doing? Because this is real life. That's why then our evening study is so important, not only seeing that there is a God, there is a providence, and that providence is the providence of God in our lives, but bringing us to see and to understand God's hand in it all. Turn to Daniel 4 and we see this is exactly what happened in Nebuchadnezzar, as you well know. Nebuchadnezzar, who for three years was as a beast of the field. Why? Because of his pride. Really, because of his atheism. Daniel 4, verse 4, and then down to verse 28. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. That's where the Lord had placed him, in a place of ease and prosperity. Are those two things dangerous? Well, they're certainly very dangerous to an unbeliever, but they're dangerous to the church. Verse 28, 
All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar, talking about the vision, the, the interpret, Daniel interprets the dream. All this came upon Neb, King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Judgment. And we know that judgment that falls upon him. So very quickly, the three best cures for atheism, especially in the hearts of God's people, but really otherwise, the three best cures for atheism are on the one hand, a humble, sincere prayer in which you call out to God and ask him to graciously reveal himself to your soul. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will answer you and you will glorify me. A sincere, humble prayer, a disposition of prayer, not just one prayer, but a disposition of prayer in which we call out to God. Because if you really can't seem to see God in all of nature and in your conscience and in all the world, then ask God to show himself to your heart. And he will. Secondly, remind yourself that atheism is so dreadful as a sin that not even the demons are guilty of it. James 2 brings this out, right? James 2 makes this so clear. The demons shudder at the reality that there is a God. Even the demons believe in God. Not even the demons can be atheists, nor is it a disposition that they choose. They can't. It is such a terrible disposition that it is only the religion of sinners. Choosing a place of the denial of God. Thirdly, remind yourself that there are no atheists or atheistic thoughts in all of hell. Remember the rich man crying out, Father Abraham, here I am in torment. There are no atheists in hell. There are no atheistic thoughts in hell. Instead, there is the regret and the sorrow and the terror of atheism, the consequence of a disposition that God is no God. So, the first sin, the second rather, as we give given in our list here, the second sin forbidden in the first commandment is the sin of atheism or Gnosticism. And this is so prevalent in our day of enlightenment, in the day of the prevalence of science, in the praising of all sorts of things, anything but God. The world will take any religion but the true one because it's the true religion of Christianity that holds man accountable to his creator. No other religion does. Every other religion allows either no God at all or the bartering with the God who exists so that you can get from the God what you want by your good works. Christianity is the only religion that confronts the sinner with his accountability to God for his sin. But praise God, it's the only religion as well that gives him a way out. The testimony of the grace of God in Christ. The third sin then forbidden in this commandment is a sin of idolatry. Either in action, bowing down and worshiping something, serving, working for something else. Or in affection, loving something more than God. Turn to 1 Corinthians. This great passage we had many occasions to look at in our study of the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians, you remember, were given to two heinous sins sexual immorality, and idolatry. Paul speaks to both of these sins repeatedly to the letters that he sent to Corinth. 
1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14. In the first 13 verses, a warning against idolatry by borrowing from the examples of the Old Testament saints, their idolatrous practices, and the consequences, the judgment that God brought upon them for those for idolatry. So he says in verse 14 now, Therefore, my beloved, he's calling them brothers, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Paul is saying, you know this, this is obvious. Your own conscience tells you this. Verse 16, we looked at with the Lord's Supper study. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, going back again into the first part of the chapter. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. The sin of idolatry is real. Because to offer to another God, to serve another God, is to participate with that God, which of course is no God at all. It is really to the devil that you find participation. And so he goes on. All idolatry is a worship of Satan. And so he goes on in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Whatever that God is... It's the cup offered to the devil. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In other words, God will make himself known. The sin of idolatry is treated, of course, more fully in the second commandment. You should not have any graven images. But here is the ground for the sinfulness of idolatry in any case. Because God alone is God. We find this in Hosea 4 verse 12. God says of his people, My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. Why? Why do they behave this way? For a spirit of whoredom, spiritual adultery, whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore goes back to Romans 1. We never give ourselves to idolatry until we begin with atheism. Right? They leave God to play the whore. We leave that we suppress the truth, the creator, the truth of the creator to worship the creature. They have forfeited, turned away from the flowing fountain, the living water says God in Jeremiah and then gone to broken cisterns. The two go together. And so, the sin of idolatry is more fully treated in the second commandment. How do we distinguish then the first and the second? Flavel puts it this way. The idolatry forbidden in the first commandment, because remember, this is the negative side of the, of the positive. The idolatry forbidden in the first commandment is a sin respecting the object of worship. When we set up anything in the place of God, which is by nature not God. When we take anything off of the throne and put take God off the throne and put anything else there, that's what the sin of the first commandment is. We're worshiping another object as God. But that against the second commandment, the sin against the second commandment, is a sin respecting the manner of worship. When we pretend to worship the true God, but do it by such means and in such a manner as he has not required or has forbidden. 
So on the one hand, it's a matter of worshiping the wrong object. On the other hand, it's a matter of worshiping God in the wrong way. Right? So there's the sin of idolatry, worshiping Baal, and there's a sin of idolatry in the second commandment, making a golden calf and bowing down to Yahweh, as if the calf represents Yahweh. We'll look at that more next time. But looking at it as an, a, an exchange in the object of worship, whatever a man sets his heart upon, that thing is his God. That's idolatry. God is calling for our heart. Whatever a man minds above all else, that is his God. Right? To mind something is to be mindful of that thing in a way that whatever we do is aimed toward acceptance and approval from that thing. So wherever we set our heart, that becomes our God. Whatever we mind above all else, that thing is our God. Whatever a man works for, lives for, and is willing to sacrifice and die for, that thing is his God. That's idolatry. Robert Layton, again, in his very brief exposition of the Ten Commandments, says, Consider that which you bestow most thoughts and services upon. What are you thinking most about? And what are you living for? That which you are most affectionate and earnest in. Where are you, where's your heart? Is not that your God? You see the practical nature of it? The commandments are all practical. We can't keep the first commandment by simply saying, as so many do, I believe in God. To keep the first commandment, as we saw last week, is to so take God as our God that everything we do is determined by Him and that we serve and love and worship and trust and fear Him. God curses the man who trusts in anything but Him. What's the consequence? The consequence is God's judgment falls upon the man who chooses anything as his trust, his fear, than God. Jeremiah 17, right before the depravity of the human heart, Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Thus says Yahweh, the one true God, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, his arm, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Notice how God goes right to the heart. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. He has put his confidence and trust and hope and reliance upon that thing. Because his heart is set on that thing. So that with trust goes love and affection. His heart has turned away from God. He would never bow down to that thing had he not first become an atheist. Had he not first turned away from God. That man, he is like a shrub in the desert. And he shall not see any good come. That's the curse. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Instead, verse 7, blessed. So we go from cursed to blessed. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Notice the Yahweh. 
He is like a tree planted by water. We go from the desert to a flowing stream. We go from a shrub to a tree that sends out its roots by the stream, Psalm 1, and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. The sun that shines on the desert and destroys that shrub is the same sun that shines on the tree. But whereas the one, it's a curse to have the sun shine, it's a blessing to have the sun shine on the tree because it brings forth leaves, they remain green. He is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The blessing of this obedience to this commandment. The fourth sin forbidden, we have the sin of disobedience, if you will, the sin of omission, but secondly, the sin of atheism and agnosticism. Thirdly, the sin of idolatry. Fourthly, then the sin of coveting, which is idolatry. Paul says this in Colossians 3, 5, put away covetousness, which is idolatry. Why does he equate the two? Because of this. When we covet what another man has, we are idolizing that thing. We are bowing our affections and thoughts down before that thing. We're longing after it. We're wishing we had it. We're desiring it. We're idolizing it as our hope. If I just had that, our stay, our rock, if I just had that, I would be safe. I would be provided for. My needs would be met. We're idolizing it as our confidence. We're dreaming and fantasizing how fulfilled and satisfied and happy we would be if we just had that. And unless the Lord stops us, we plan and scheme how to get that. And as James 4 says, not by working with our own hands, but by taking his for ourself. And all of this is done now. All of this is done in the heart, right? Notice that. Covetousness is a sin of the heart. But all of this is done in the face of God. So while we're turning away to what a man to what another man has, whatever it may be, think of the 10th commandment, turn away to what another man has. Meanwhile, behind us, if you will, stands God. We're doing it in the very face of God, who alone can satisfy our souls, who alone can provide our needs, who alone can make us happy, comfortable, and blessed, and whom we already have as our God. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. It's as much as saying, you don't need any God but me. Covetousness is saying that God is not enough. On the one hand, God is not God, but covetousness is saying God is not enough. And God is standing there with his arms bubbling over, pouring over with everything we need, but more importantly, with himself. That's what God gives in the first commandment. He gives himself. And that's what, remember Psalm 4? That's what the soul is really crying out for. Who will show us some good? It's crying out for God, but we think we can find God in what another man has. Meanwhile, God stands there so full, so ready to give. And moreover, none should be the object of the heart's deepest desires and longings and worship, but God himself, which takes us back to the positive duty of this commandment. Everything we're giving to what another man has, our thoughts, our affections, Loving it, desiring it, wanting it, fantasizing about it, thinking about it. All of those heart actions 
should only be given to God. God alone is worthy. God alone is due. My son, give me your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first and the great commandment. Love me. Serve me. Bow down to me. Worship me. Covet me. Long for me. Think about me. Everything we're giving away, every outbirth of the heart, really only belongs to God. It's idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. And then finally, fifthly, the sin of autonomy. You remember Genesis 3, 5, as the serpent came with his first lie. You shall become his gods. You shall not surely die. You shall be as God, knowing good and evil. The point there is, you shall be able to decide for yourself what is good and evil. Because God had put many trees, every tree, he put in the garden, given it to the people, given it to our, our first parents. But God had said of one tree, that is not for you. The temptation was, why let God to de decide for you what you should or should not have? You can decide that for yourself. Why let God decide for you what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong? You can decide that for yourself. And ought you not? You're a man made in the image of God above all the beast. And can you not? You're made in the image of God. Surely, that means something. Surely you can decide. Surely you have everything you need in yourself to decide what's good and what's wrong, what's sin and what's righteous. That's autonomy. So that now, given the fall, every man by nature is his own God. The first sin that corrupted our nature was the sin of trying to be a God unto ourselves. Go back to Genesis 3 and remind yourself. And that sin of autonomy is now at the heart and the core of our nature. It is at the heart and the core of all our wickedness. Here we get to the hub. Here we get to the very kernel. It's autonomy. It's Judges 21, 25. When there is no king in Israel... Every man does what is right in his own eyes. That's the disposition of the human heart. I do it because I want to. It's good because I say it's good. It's right for me because I say it's right for me. I decide. That's autonomy. Turn over to 2 Timothy 3. I want you to see this. 2 Timothy 3, Paul speaks here of godlessness in the last days. It's the same thing we see in Romans 1 that we saw in Romans 1 already. A refusal to acknowledge God gives way to all the wickedness that flows into that chapter. The same thing happens here. Verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days, those are the days in which we live right now, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Difficulty for the church, difficulty for the preacher. For people will be, mark it, lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, remember ingratitude, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, goes back to lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, 
Where did all this come from? Where did all of this come from? Why is it going to be so bad? Rather than lovers of God. Rather than lovers of God. That's really the bookend. Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. By nature, we love and serve ourselves, and we want everyone to join the party. We use and abuse everything in life according to how well it serves our selfish ends. We are the end, the chief end of all our actions, and we sacrifice all things to our own glory. That's autonomy. I live for myself, and so should you. I worship me, and so should you. I will use you to my advantage. I use and abuse according as it serves my chief end. That's autonomy. That's the heart of man. Remember from our heart work study, the three great enemies to all the heart work of a Christian is self-love, self-conceit, self-will. These all three arise from the central sin of autonomy, the desire to be our own God. We want to decide for ourselves. It goes back to what we said in the beginning. We will not have this man to reign over me. Jim. That may be, but the sin's always been there, hasn't it? It's always been. Yeah. These are the sins forbidden in the first commandment. But so many of the commandments, as we find even in the first one, so many of the commandments have a reason added to impress it upon our consciences, upon our hearts, to motivate us. The reason annexed to the first commandment is that disobedience to it will be done before the face of God. The Lord says, you, ha- you shall have no other gods before me, before my face. In other words, by those words, as our catechism brings out, by those words, the Lord is telling us that in all that we do, we live before his very face. We do live, Coram Deo. Not consciously in our sin, but we do in reality. We live in his presence. And as we've seen already, particularly with this commandment, God sees us. He doesn't just see our every action. He sees our every thought. He sees our every affection, our every motive. God sees. He beholds. Robert Layton goes so far as to say, if you can worship another God without God seeing it, go for it. Because what God forbids is the worshiping of another God before his face. The reality, of course, is it's impossible. It's a warning, this before me, it's a warning that if we disobey, God will see it. And seeing it, God will punish it. Because disobedience to this commandment is a personal insult to God. Because as I described earlier, it occurs in his very presence. You can't do, you can't break this commandment, or any commandment, but you can't break this commandment behind closed doors. 
God sees. And it's an insult to him. Go back to Romans 1. It's an insult to God. That's why his wrath is poured out. He's insulted that a world so bound, so dependent, and before whom he has made clear, and they perceive it, and made it known to them all, for them to refuse to acknowledge him as God and instead worship the the creature rather than the creator, he pours out his wrath. If we obey this commandment, and we have God as our God, our entire life will bear, will bear the blessed fruit of that choice. Psalm 144, verse 15. Blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. Blessed. Go back to Jeremiah uh, Jeremiah 17. Right? Blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust. Cursed, however, is the one who doesn't. This first commandment is the most spiritual Because it calls us to esteem, delight in, know, love, fear, trust, all that we saw last week in none but God himself. It's a matter of the heart. You shall have no other gods before me. Where does that that obedience to the commandment begin? It begins with the heart, relying upon none, leaning upon none, acknowledging none, loving none, serving and obeying none but God. And as we learned in the last lesson, It is therefore the most helpful and fundamental commandment because all these worship actions, remember how we, all these worship actions of the heart, these actions are the actions that determine all the actions of the will. All the actions of the heart determine the actions of the will. Remember Proverbs 4.23, keep the heart with all keeping. Why? Because out of it flow the issues of life. Everything comes from the heart. And so everything goes right or wrong, well or ill, from our answer to this first commandment. Will you have me as your God? If you will, then it will go well with you. If you will not, it will not go well with you. It will go cursed with you. As we think about what this means for us today as God's people, first of all, let us be humbled and confess to God our atheism, our idolatry, our covetousness, our self-centeredness. Because there is not a man among us who doesn't sometimes fear God, fear man more than God, depend upon outward means more than God, love earthly things more than God, and seek our own glory more than God's. As the Catechism says, we break all the commandments in thought, word, and deed daily. And it begins here. Secondly, let us learn to use all outward things as though we didn't use them. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 7. So that our minds, affections, and choices may not be fixed upon or determined by anything but God. Lest we make gods of the creatures. Use the things of life, especially all the blessings that God gives us. The prosperities that God gives us. Use these things as though you didn't use them. Hold them with an open hand. Don't cling to them. Trust in them. Hope in them. Depend upon them. Worship them. That's a sure way to lose them, but that is a sure way to break this commandment. Let us learn to rest on, depend upon, and trust in none but God for all our joy and peace and happiness because he is God. And then finally, 
Let us learn the great lesson of dying to self. Remember, this is the ABCs of the Christian life. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let us learn the great lesson of denying self. Because self, as we've seen, self is at the heart of all our other sins. And the better we learn to die to self, the more holily we will live. We need to say with John the Baptist in John 3.30, He must increase and I must decrease. Galatians 2.20, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I walk with Jesus, live for Jesus, give my all to Jesus. He is my all. Acts 20.24, I count my life as nothing but that I may yield it to Christ. Serve Christ. That's it. The first commandment is not one of just which the, the Gentiles are guilty. It's one of which the church can be very guilty. So may God give us the grace today, especially as we come into worship, and we'll hear about this in the preaching of God's word this morning. May God give us the grace to own and acknowledge none but him as God. And therefore, and only then can we, truly worship him in an acceptable manner today. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, open our hearts to your truth this morning. Convict us, we pray, deeply and thoroughly of our sins, especially the sins of breaking this first commandment, the first and the great commandment that you've given to us, the very beginnings of what it means to be a creature morally accountable to God, our creator. But more than that, Accountable, O God, as your children. Accountable to a father. Accountable as the redeemed of the Lord. How we pray, Father, that even as believers, we would not fall into the disobedience of this sin. But may we guard our hearts today against it. And indeed, may we cultivate what it means to live before your very presence. May we practice the presence of God today, communing with you and acknowledging you, living before your face. Be with us today as we seek to worship none but you, and may you reveal yourself to us indeed as God, our God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the means of grace. In his name we pray, amen.